Federal regulators say North Carolina-based First Citizens will buy all of the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank and its former branches will reopen today. It's Monday, March 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... The sound of protesters in Tel Aviv, they're upset that Israel's defense minister was fired for speaking out against plans to weaken the country's judicial system. Also, new research finds the mortality rate in the U.S. doesn't compare favorably with the rest of the world. The countries that are ahead of us, Cuba, Lebanon, Barbados, Chile. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And this hour, first France, now it's Germany, where thousands of workers are on strike, causing major disruption to travel. In sports, the Bruins and Celtics win, increasing clouds today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House has released a statement expressing concern over the firing of Israel's defense minister following his request to freeze proposed judicial reforms. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports. The statement from National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson said the latest developments in Israel underscore the urgent need for compromise, adding that President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu recently discussed that democratic values must always remain a hallmark of the U.S.-Israel relationship. The statement also says changes to a democratic system should have the broadest possible base of support. That's NPR's Marie Andrusevich reporting. Protesters are back on the streets in Israel today, calling on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to freeze plans to overhaul the country's judicial system. Netanyahu is also facing pressure from his far-right government not to back down. North Korea test launched two short-range missiles into the sea this morning, the seventh launch so far this month. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports, North Korea says some of the launches are in response to joint military exercises being held by the U.S. and South Korea. South Korea's military says that the short-range ballistic missiles were launched from North Huanghe province and flew east for about 230 miles. Last week, the U.S. and South Korea conducted a range of drills involving their armies, air forces, marines, and missile defense units. This week, the Allies will practice amphibious landings and hold naval drills, including a U.S. aircraft carrier strike group. North Korea, meanwhile, last week tested what it claimed was a nuclear-capable underwater drone. State media last week quoted the North's leader Kim Jong-un as saying he intends to use his arsenal to plunge the U.S. imperialists and their South Korean puppets into despair. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Idaho may soon use firing squads to execute death row inmates under a new state law signed last week. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the method hasn't been employed in the U.S. in more than a decade. Idaho's Republican Governor Brad Little signed the law on Friday, allowing prison officials to use a firing squad if they couldn't obtain the drugs necessary for a lethal injection. The law, which takes effect on July 1st, will make Idaho the fifth state to currently allow executions by firing squad, joining Mississippi, Oklahoma, Utah, and South Carolina. That's according to the nonprofit Death Penalty Information Center. The move comes as more and more states are struggling to find the chemicals needed for a lethal injection particularly because some drug companies have stopped selling them. The last person to die by a firing squad in the U.S. was convicted killer and Utah prisoner Ronnie Lee Gardner, who was executed in 2010. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This is NPR. 
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren is running for re-election in 2024. WBOR's Dan Guzman reports Warren made her decision public this morning. In a campaign video posted to social media, the 73-year-old Democrat kicked off her bid for a third term with her common themes, promising to be an advocate for the middle class while taking on large corporations. I'm running for Senate again because there's a lot more we've got to do. Pass a wealth tax, make child care affordable, protect our coastal communities, and build a 21st century transportation system across all of Massachusetts. Warren was first elected to the Senate in 2012. She unsuccessfully ran for president in 2020. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The Healy administration wants the former head of the Long Island commuter rail system to lead the T. People with knowledge of the decision tell the Boston Globe Healy is considering Philip Eng. He was president of the Long Island Railroad from 2018 to early last year. News of his hire could come as soon as today. The Healy administration declined to comment. There's another way to get between East Boston and downtown this morning. Ferry service is resuming between Lewis Wharf and Long Wharf. That may help T commuters who are frustrated by slow zones on the blue line. WBUR's Andrea Permodo Hernandez reports. The East Boston Ferry is a seasonal pilot program that aims to increase travel along Boston's waterways. About 11,000 people rode the ferry last fall. State Senator Lydia Edwards hopes ridership will increase during the ferry's spring run. I think what we're hoping to see and show is that this is a sustainable service that people want and need. Alice Brown of Boston Harbor Now says the ferry makes it easier for more people to explore East Boston. From great restaurants to great parks to great views of the city and just an outstanding community of people. The ferry is expected to run through the fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A pandemic-era rule protecting some renters from eviction is set to expire this Friday. The rule pauses eviction cases for tenants who have applied for rental assistance from the state. Local housing advocates want lawmakers to extend those protections through July of next year. The policy has been extended in the past. It's 706. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Bruins beat the Carolina Hurricanes 4-3 in a shootout last night in Raleigh. The Bees will host the Nashville Predators tomorrow. The Celtics beat the San Antonio Spurs 137-93 yesterday at the Garden. They'll visit the Washington Wizards tomorrow. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll be in the mid-50s. Cloudy and rain overnight. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Showers tomorrow morning, then mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 39 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. Israelis are bracing for a day that could determine the future of their country. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired his defense minister over the weekend. Yoav Gallant had said protests against the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul had spread inside the military, causing a threat to national security. Protesters have gathered outside the parliament where Netanyahu's coalition is preparing for a final vote on the legislation, even as Israeli media report Netanyahu may be considering a freeze. Now for the latest, we turn to NPR's Daniel Estrin. He is joining us now from Jerusalem. Daniel, it's uh, pretty loud there. What, uh, What do you got going on there? You know, this is a dramatic, consequential moment in in Israel. Israel's largest trade union has called a national strike. Flights are currently grounded. Hospitals are canceling non-urgent treatments. And things escalated really quickly last night when I was caught on the highway. Uh, There was a spontaneous protest erupted in the middle of the road, thousands of protesters. Because Netanyahu fired his defense minister, he was the only government minister who came out opposing the judicial overhaul. So he fired him. Listen to this protester who approached me, Yanai Orr. The Prime Minister doesn't understand that he's disconnected from what's going on. He's not doing enough to calm the energy up. That's very scary because it could lead to um, civil war or, or something similar because, you know, people here are scared of, of no leadership. Well, now leadership uh, security officials are meeting today. Reportedly, they met and said that there is an immediate threat that Israel's regional enemies could attack at this moment when uh, when the country is weak and divided. I, I am now gathered outside parliament where protesters are gathering, and everyone here is waiting to hear, will Netanyahu announce that he's putting a stop to his judicial overhaul? It was supposed to go to a final vote today. Yeah, these uh, overhauls include uh, having control of judicial appointments and also maybe overriding uh, Supreme Court decisions. What are the chances that uh, he doesn't go through with it and announces that freeze? Well, if he does announce that he's freezing the core part of the legislation, which would be allowing the government to have some control over appointing Supreme Court justices, if he does freeze that legislation, he could try to hold a dialogue with the opposition and reach a compromise. But, you know, there's just too much bad blood. Uh, there is a complete lack of trust in Netanyahu. We've seen civil society erupt in a way that we've never seen before. Uh, universities are canceled today as well. It's hard to see how Netanyahu's government uh, moves forward at this moment with such massive protest. What would be those implications, though, if he does freeze? I mean, where does he go from there? Well, that is the question. If he does come out and he is right now huddling with his government, trying to understand whether his government could fall uh, if he announces he's he's canceling this legislation, um, you know, he could say he's taking Israel back from the brink of potential violence at this moment of, of turmoil. But... Uh, whether or not he manages to survive this and actually stay in power with such massive protest, uh, it's really hard to see that, eh? Uh, the Pandora's box has been opened in Israel, and uh, we don't know where it's headed. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you, eh?
Now to the scene of that devastating tornado over the weekend. Rolling Fork, Mississippi is the birthplace of Blue's Great Muddy Waters. That fact is prominently displayed on a website that describes the history of the Delta and all of its many attractions. But those attractions are going to have to take a backseat, at least for now, to another event that is now also on the website, that tornado that leveled homes and businesses. At least 26 people were killed and dozens more injured. Search and recovery efforts are resuming this morning. President Joe Biden has authorized an emergency declaration for Mississippi, providing federal funds for the hardest-hit areas. Yolanda Miner is the Mississippi State Director for the humanitarian aid organization Save the Children. We reached her in the city of Indianola to tell us more about what she's seen and heard over the weekend in Rolling Fork and nearby and what's needed there. Yolanda Miner, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me this morning. On arrival, the scene in person was heartbreaking. My thoughts immediately with some families, especially the children with their social emotional well-being. And as you stated, there were at least 25 people dead. Their homes and communities were destroyed. They might not even know where their next meal is coming from, where their family and friends are. It is our goal to get this community and these families back to some normal routine. Absolutely. So let me let me ask you, Miss, Miss Yolanda, let me just ask you a couple of things. First of all, I know you've been with the organization for a number of years now. How would you say this compares to previous uh, disasters where you've rendered aid? This one, I will rank it at about a 10 because as I drove through, everything was flat. There were only maybe two buildings left. There were cars thrown everywhere. And literally families were sitting uh, down sad streets. And I can imagine the thoughts that were going through their mind. And and the the Delta is where this this deadly tornado hit. It's it's not an affluent area. I think people understand that. And it's also pretty sparsely populated. How does that affect the recovery efforts? It's kind of greatly affected because there were challenges with this communities prior to these tornadoes. They lacked resources. They lacked transportation because of the distance from town to town. Now what it's going to take is community leaders coming together long term to help get this community back to the normal. Now, your organization, Save the Children, as the name implies, I mean, you you have children and families at the center. What, what would you say are there particular needs for the children right now? For the children, definitely we need to get them back to normal, make sure that they're having some age-appropriate books, something to hold their attention, uh, making sure they have shelter and food. Because if their basic normal needs are not met, nothing else around them is going to matter. So just getting a little back a little bit of normalcy back to the kids, maybe a toy. You know, I thought yesterday, if we can just get a toy in the hand of a child, just to see their face light up after such devastation. Can, can I just ask you, because this is like, as I said, such a sparsely populated area, are there any places for people to stay at all? Like, is there a community center or any the churches or schools still standing? Where are people going to stay, say, today? Well, they're going to neighboring and shelters open, um, old National Guard armories have been open. The community is really um, 
opening up just to ensure that people have a place. But they're still needing things like air mattresses, non-perishable foods, and things like that. So before we let you go, how and, and thank you again for your hard work at a, at a time like this. I'm sure it's very much needed. How long do you think this recovery will take, as briefly as you can? It will take a long time, and it's going to take community leaders coming together, pulling resources to ensure these children and families get back to normalcy. And that's what Save the Children does. That's Yolanda Miner. She's the Mississippi State Director for the humanitarian aid organization Save the Children. Yolanda Miner, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Can a newly installed cell phone tower help preserve a language? Well, that's the hope of Cherokee Nation leaders in Oklahoma. Families can make reliable calls and send texts thanks to a nearly 360-foot-tall tower. Elizabeth Caldwell from member station KWGS reports on the significance of connectivity. It's lunchtime in Kenwood, Oklahoma, a tiny community of about 1,000 people on the Cherokee Nation reservation. It's pretty far off the beaten path. In the community center, two women are serving soup and sandwiches. It's for the elders to get together here and we serve lunch and they can just visit each other. And this is Debbie, we're the cooks here. Hi. Want to eat? <laughs> Gladys Stoller and Debbie O'Field have lived in Kenwood for a long time. Today is a big day. This remote community gets a cell phone tower. Until now, Gladys says people had to connect to weak Wi-Fi at a certain spot by the community center. They sit outside underneath that pole and make calls. People would also drive up nearby hills hunting for bars, but not anymore. I send you all many, many blessings and much success in, in everything else that you are looking to do with these funds. All right. Well, do treasure, Chief. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. All right crystal clear. That's the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr. He's standing next to the cell phone tower in a field littered with cow patties. He just got off the phone with the U.S. Treasurer, Marilyn Malerba. American Rescue Plan money paid for the AT&T tower, and Hoskin wanted to thank Malerba. He says reliable cell service might entice young people to stay put. You have to have a community in which elders and young people are sharing the community and the communities aren't dying on the vine. For 21-year-old Gracie Scott, who lives with her grandmother, it's exciting to be better connected. She thinks the tower will be a big help in making Kenwood a better place for everyone. You know, having service through here, there's a lot of, like, mail delivery drivers that, you know, get lost, and now they can use their GPSs, you know, and just people finding their way through here and being able to get a hold of people as you're through here and not thinking, oh, my gosh, when am I going to get service again, you know. Now, Kenwood residents have reliable 911 service and can do telemedicine in some cases. Danina Squirrel lives here, too, and hopes the new cell tower will spread the Cherokee language by connecting native speakers anywhere. To see it as a reality today is incredible, and I think this will allow us to do a lot of online classes and even teach classes from here. In the meantime, Danina says she's just going to enjoy the simple pleasure of making a phone call, which she has not done yet. But she knows who she'll call. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, I could call my my guy, my boyfriend. He makes traditional Cherokee stick ball sticks. And so he's over in another community. So I may call him and say, hey, we're online. And they will no longer have to sit by a pole or drive around to make a phone call. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Kenwood, Oklahoma. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a group of scientists have been trying to warn about declining life expectancies in the U.S. for a decade. Now, some think there's a chance to turn things around. Right now, it's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. This fall, eight counties in California are launching new care courts to help people with untreated severe mental illnesses. Some advocates are worried that the program is coercion, not care. Care court, as it's written right now, is unconstitutionally vague and it violates the civil rights of our clients with mental health disabilities who are homeless. More about the program and All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Increasing clouds today with a high near 55. Tonight it falls to a low around 37. Overnight and into early tomorrow morning, there's a good chance of rain, then mostly cloudy tomorrow with a high near 46. Right now it's 39 degrees in Boston. Tonight at WBUR City Space, a conversation with David Hogg. He's a survivor of the 2018 high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, and has become a gun control activist along with other survivors. Hogg spoke at the March for Our Lives rally on Boston Common this weekend. Tonight, he'll be talking with WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Join us in person or virtually. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Consider this paradox. The U.S. prides itself on scientific excellence and spends a lot of money on health care. But its population is dying at younger and younger ages. Numbers from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, indicate that American life expectancy is dropping while in other rich countries people are living longer. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has been looking into a report from scientists who saw this coming 10 years ago. But they think there's still a chance to turn things around. The panel of researchers brought together by the National Institutes of Health and the National Academy of Sciences were trying to understand this. Why does living in America make you more likely to die younger than if you lived in a country like the UK, Switzerland, or Japan? In 2013, the nearly 400-page report was published with the title, Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. It made a splash. Americans under 50 are dying earlier and live with worse health than their counterparts. That's the conclusion of a blue ribbon panel at the National Academy of Science. That statistics drags down the overall American life expectancy. Americans are used to hearing about how they don't eat right or get enough exercise. But the picture painted in this report could shock even those who feel like they know the story. On page two, it reads... 
American children are less likely to live to age five than children in other high-income countries. It goes on, even Americans with healthy behaviors, for example, those who are not obese or do not smoke, appear to have higher disease rates than their peers in other countries. We were trying to just say, look, this is an American problem. That's Eileen Crimmins, professor of gerontology at the University of Southern California, who was on the panel. Things aren't just bad for people in the U.S. who are poor or uninsured or racially marginalized. There is data that actually shows that even the top proportion of the U.S. population does worse than the top proportion of other populations. Stephen Wolf, who chaired the panel and is professor emeritus at Virginia Commonwealth University, says they didn't just catalog the U.S. health disadvantage. They dug into the reasons why. Some people will say we eat too much. Others might say we don't have universal health care and all those other countries do. But what we did in our committee is we were very systematic and thorough about how we thought about this. They went through everything from health behaviors to how cities are built and found all sorts of problems. So Americans indeed have more caloric intake than people in other countries. We are more likely to own guns. There's higher rates of drug abuse now. They found there are lots of factors at play, like truly lots. We found higher child poverty rates, the highest levels of income inequality, systemic racism, uh, social isolation, and I could go on. I I don't want to have too long an answer, but you, you get the point. Not only does all of this mean American families lose loved ones too soon, but having a sicker population costs the country hundreds of billions of dollars every year in extra health care costs. John Haga was a division director at the National Institute on Aging at NIH before he retired. He says the list of challenges is daunting. That might partly be why the issue doesn't grab people. They just go, oh my gosh, that's depressing. What's on the other channel? When the report was published in 2013, that appears to be what federal health officials wanted to do, even though there were tons of suggestions in the report about what research the federal government could do next to act on these findings. Here's Wolf. NIH was not involved in trying to promote awareness about the report. Haga, who was at NIH at the time, agrees the response was lacking. Not nearly enough has been done, given the stakes and given what we could learn. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services pointed NPR to its work on the drivers of lower life expectancy. In the 10 years since the paper came out, the trends have worsened. The pandemic took a horrible toll. Other countries' life expectancy rebounded in 2021. In the U.S., it did not. This month, new studies show U.S. maternal mortality hit a near record, and child and adolescent mortality is on the rise in America, too. So where does the U.S. rank? Here's Crimmins. The countries that are ahead of us, Cuba, Lebanon, Barbados, Chile. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Crimmins suggests one problem in addressing this issue is that lawmakers and federal health officials don't like talking about how the U.S. is lagging behind other countries. When she wanted to bring Canadian experts to a meeting on healthy life expectancy, she recalls one health official's response. Oh, we can't have anything but an American solution to these issues. We can't listen to other countries. John Haga says there's another reason why research with other countries can be a tough sell. International studies are not uh, flavor of the month. They uh, never will be. The problem with foreign countries is they're not in someone's congressional district. If you add up the deaths that have happened because of this life expectancy gap, Wolf says, 
It dwarfs what happened during COVID-19 in the U.S. He finds the lack of progress frustrating. If a Martian came down to Earth and saw this situation, it would be very intuitive that you look at other countries that have been able to solve this problem and apply the lessons learned. Dr. Ravi Sani, who helped conceive of and launch the Shorter Lives study before leaving NIH, says there's a positive way of looking at these problems, not as daunting and unsolvable, but as a code that our peer countries have already cracked. They've already figured it out. We already do research collaborations with these same countries. We share health data. We can figure out what they're doing that's making such a difference. Some of the ideas Wolf has found in his research that gets results in other countries include universal, better coordinated health care, strong health and safety protections, broad access to education, and more investments to help kids get off to a healthy start. These policies are paying off for them, he says, and could for Americans, too. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, delays are expected today as train, bus, and air workers strike in Germany. They want raises to meet high and rising inflation. And coming up at 8, the arrest of Indian opposition leader Rahul Gandhi has international leaders raising questions about the state of India's democracy. It's 729. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Damage assessments are continuing in areas of Mississippi, where Friday's tornado leveled homes and businesses. At least 25 people were killed in Mississippi. The tornado left one person dead in Alabama. NPR's Debbie Elliott says Rolling Fork, Mississippi, was heavily damaged. 75% of Rolling Fork is pretty much flattened. Uh, this is a predominantly black town of about 2,000 people. You know, the city hall is damaged. The water tower blew down. Power lines are just everywhere. The generator at the hospital needs repairs. So as crews start to work on that and they're clearing away some of the debris, volunteers have just descended on the town. They've got food, water, supplies, clothing, you know, diapers, anything that people might need. The National Weather Service says it appears the tornado was an EF4 with winds of up to 200 miles per hour. Vice President Harris is in Ghana. NPR's Marie Andrusevich says Harris will be spending a week in Africa. The vice president says during her visit to strengthen ties with Africa, she wants to promote economic growth and food security. Although Ghana has one of Africa's more stable democracies, it's currently facing economic turmoil and violence in the north. 
Harris has met with Ghana's president twice before, both times in Washington. A joint news conference is expected following the meeting. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A key Beacon Hill lawmaker vows to block the state auditor's effort to audit the legislature. House Speaker Ron Mariano says he will not cooperate with the audit. He says it violates the separation of the three branches of government. He also told WCVB's on the record that he believes the audit is unnecessary. We are audited every year by an outside professional auditing firm. All of that is available in the clerk's office with a phone call. We also keep all our expenditures on the open checkbook account on the internet. State Auditor Diana DeZaglio promises to move ahead with her audit. She says it will increase transparency and accountability. T-Riders will only have to flash their Charlie cards to get on the commuter rail this morning. MBTA officials say they want to help speed up commutes for subway riders who are dealing with speed restrictions. This change was made available last week to red and orange line commuters. It's expanding to blue and green line riders this morning. Salem voters will take part in a preliminary election tomorrow. They'll narrow the field of five candidates for mayor down to two. The city needs to replace Kim Driscoll. She stepped down as mayor after 17 years in office to become lieutenant governor. The top two candidates in tomorrow's election will be back on the ballot in May. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Celtics routed the San Antonio Spurs yesterday. The final at the Garden was 137-93. The Seas will visit the Washington Wizards tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Carolina Hurricanes in a shootout. The final in Raleigh was 4-3. The Bees will host the Nashville Predators tomorrow. The Red Sox will begin their season. Season Thursday at Fenway Park, and the re- area around the ballpark is already bustling. WBR's Sharon Brody paid a visit to the team's store across the street from Fenway. Tim Pettit is a store manager at this emporium of all things Red Sox and has worked in the shop since the mid-1990s. The Newton native says hope springs eternal. If you want to continue to be a Red Sox fan, you have to have that guarded optimism. Not every year will be your year, but they've given us enough reasons over the past 20 years to think, you know what, maybe sometimes the magic will come together and they'll win a few, they'll get hot. As for what might sell big this year, Pettit says he's expecting continued demand for Rafi Devers merchandise, with fans also flocking to Tristan Casas and Masataka Yoshida. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. In your forecast, skies gradually grow cloudy today and we'll have high temperatures in the mid-50s. Tonight we'll dip into the 30s and overnight there's a chance of rain. The showers may continue early tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy with highs in the mid-40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Europe's biggest economy is paralyzed. Tens of thousands of workers across Germany's transportation system are on a one-day strike. Nearly all train and plane travel is canceled while workers demand wage increases to deal with inflation. NPR's Rob Schmitz is at Berlin Central Station. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Michelle. So I take it you are at what normally would be one of Germany's busiest train stations. What does it look like today? Well, this is about as empty as I have ever seen it here. In the background, you can hear this, which is this kind of looped recording saying that there is a strike today. There are no trains running. And there are similar scenes being played out across this country at some of Europe's largest transportation hubs today. Deutsche Bahn, which is Germany's national railway, has essentially shut down all train travel inside Germany today to deal with the strike. But this goes beyond trains. Some of the of some of Europe's biggest airports, Frankfurt, Munich, this goes on, have grounded most flights. Nearly 400,000 passengers have had flights canceled, and even local public transportation inside Germany's biggest cities are impacted. Uh, subways, ferries, buses are not running routes today. So that's a big deal. So what's behind it? Yeah. Well, the unions that represent the workers uh, are asking for wage increases of between 10 and 12 percent. Uh, Deutsche Bahn and other public employers are only offering a 5 percent wage increase. Workers are asking for more because they're saying their wages have not kept up with high inflation that has plagued Europe this, this past year and has been worsened by high energy prices as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine. So this can be hard to gauge, but do you have a sense of public opinion whether Germans who are, who are not transportation workers support this? Yeah, we've spoken to several people here this morning, and for the most part, there is support for these strikes. Franziska Strobel told me she generally supports these workers. Here's what she said. Um, and Michelle, she's saying here that railway workers have the right to strike and that she's heard many of them are stuck with minimum wage jobs where they make around $13 an hour. And that's wrong in this day and age with prices rising as quickly as they are. But she did say that she hopes the workers do not strike during the Easter holiday that's coming up when millions of Germans take vacations because that would be extremely disruptive. Unions have not ruled that out. Her feelings on this seem to echo the rest of the country. According to a survey taken last week, only a small majority of Germans are sympathetic to uh, worker demands. 55% of people surveyed consider the strikes justified. 38% said they didn't agree at all with worker demands, saying they were asking for too much. I understand that this strike is, is the latest of several in Germany. I think a lot of people may remember that there are also big strikes in France to protest changes in the pension system there. Is this connected somehow? Yeah, the protests in France have to do with raising the official retirement age. And these strikes in Germany are crippling transportation because workers feel they deserve better wages. But in many ways, high inflation is impacting all of this. Here in Germany, prices are up nearly 10 percent over last year. The cost of food, gas, heating, you name it, has skyrocketed. And people are spending more for all of this while making roughly the same amount they've made for years. So there's growing frustration among workers throughout Europe that life is getting more and more expensive and their future may not be as bright as they once thought it would be. Now, the European Central Bank has tried to address inflation the same way the Fed in the U.S. has through interest rate hikes. But that's proven to be dangerous, too, because that's made life more difficult for banks and the markets in general. And we've seen plenty of problems in the financial sector here in Europe, including a near bank failure with Credit Suisse. So European leaders are certainly struggling to address these problems. That was NPR's Rob Schmitz. He was with us at Berlin Central Station. 
All right, college basketball's postseason continues to live up to that March Madness nickname. Several newcomers qualified over the weekend for the Final Four in the Men's Division I tournament. At the same time, the women's tournament is showing off a newfound parody with surprises of its own. Here's NPR's Tom Goldman. By the end of the weekend, this maddest of marches left many a college basketball fan dazed. There were almost as many historic moments as advertisements featuring AT&T's Lily. Almost. Friday night in the men's tournament, the last number one seeds, Alabama and Houston, lost. So the headline here is that there is no number ones left in the Elite Eight for the first time ever. It's the biggest win in Hurricane Hoops history. Miami heading to the Final Four for the first time. Sunday night, the University of Miami finished off the men's action with a win over Texas, heard here on CBS, and became the third Final Four first-timer, along with San Diego State and Florida Atlantic University. The FAU Owls are the lowest seed among the remaining teams, which also include Connecticut, and the biggest surprise to everyone but the FAU Owls. Brian Greenlee is a junior guard. Honestly, all the things people say just fuels us to even go out there and play even harder. So they can say what we want, say we're a Cinderella team, uh, say we don't belong, but we've constantly proven people wrong all season. It was a regular season where no one dominant men's team emerged. The parody was fueled by players using the transfer portal to change schools and spread talent. Also, the NCAA gave athletes an extra year of eligibility due to COVID postponements, meaning teams were stocked with experienced players. This all could be said for the women's game as well, which traditionally hasn't had the parity and depth of the men's game. But change is happening. In this tournament, two number one seeds lost before the round of 16, the first time that's happened in a quarter century. Don Staley coaches the overall number one seeded South Carolina Gamecocks. This is a new history that we're, you know, we're venturing into um, because there are so many great players and parity in our league that, we need to start documenting because we probably lost a lot of our history because we we chose not to share it. Iowa's Caitlin Clark is doing her part to show off the women's game. <laughs> and Caitlin Clark has a 40-point triple-double in the Elite Eight. That was history, as heard on ESPN. No women's tournament player had ever pulled off the 40-point triple-double. Clark, a junior guard, finished with 41 points to go with 12 assists and 10 rebounds in Iowa's Elite Eight win over Louisville. You know, I thought our team played really well. That's what it's all about. Um, you know, I was going to give every single thing I had. When I came here, I said I wanted to take this program to the Final Four, and all you got to do is dream, and all you got to do is believe and work your butt off to get there. It's Iowa's first trip to the women's Final Four in 30 years. LSU also qualified yesterday. It's the first Final Four since 2007 that won't include perennial power UConn. The Huskies most likely will be back, but for now, women's college basketball is showing it's quite capable of filling the void. Tom Goldman, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
Coming up next on Morning Edition, a new Colorado law gives powered wheelchair owners the right to do minor repairs themselves, something they've been asking for for years. And in our next hour, recovery efforts are underway in Mississippi after a tornado caused devastation and killed more than two dozen people. It'll gradually grow cloudy today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-50s. Tonight, upper 30s and overnight and into early tomorrow morning, there's a good chance of rain. Then cloudy tomorrow in the mid-40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. Boston Marathon organizers will reveal the new corporate sponsor for the race later this morning. Today's announcement will take place at Bank of America's New England headquarters. The Boston Business Journal reports Bank of America did not respond to inquiries about a possible sponsorship of the race, but the bank already sponsors the Chicago Marathon. Bedford-based Berkshire Gray is being bought out by a Japanese tech firm. SoftBank already owned nearly one-third of the robotics company. It'll pay $375 million for the rest. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Somewhere on your list of life's annoyances is probably this. Manufacturers who won't let customers fix products themselves. Some states are pushing back with right-to-repair laws. Andrew Kenny from Colorado Public Radio visited with one of the first people to use a new right-to-repair law for powered wheelchairs. Bruce Gogid, who's 68, has used his powered wheelchair for so long that it feels like an extension of himself. He has multiple sclerosis, which affects his speech. I just think of it as legs, as being my legs. And that means when he got a new chair last year, every detail had to be right, like the speed of its different modes. His wife, Robin Bulldog, says each one of those adjustments required a visit from an authorized technician. It took weeks. We would have to call someone, make an appointment, have them come out and say, gee, I'd like to change it so we're walking just a little bit faster. On one of those visits, Robin realized that the technician wasn't using some specialized device to change the settings. It was a smartphone app. She even found it on the App Store, but it was only available for authorized users. Well, I want the app. And he was like, you can't have the app, but I want the app. That would have been the end of the road. Except that Robin and Bruce knew that Colorado's new wheelchair right-to-repair law had just gone into effect. Representative Brianna Tatone is the sponsor of the new law. 
back in 2021, she originally proposed a much broader bill that would have applied to computers, cell phones, and more. That meant an uphill fight against lobbyists for everything from hospitals to tech giants. So I did not win that fight. I, I lost that fight pretty bad. So that's why the following year we paired it back to the people who really deserve to have this right. And that were the people who were in wheelchairs. The narrower wheelchair-focused law passed the legislature last year with the help of advocates like Bruce and Robin. Once it went into effect on New Year's Day, Robin called the manufacturer to demand access to their app. They were not prepared, right? which understandably were the only state, and it was day one. right? So they were not prepared. In a committee hearing last year, Tanya Hammett of National Seating and Mobility, a wheelchair vendor, warned state lawmakers that power wheelchairs are too complex for DIY jobs. This bill will allow anyone to perform complex repairs to power wheelchairs, which may lead to negative outcomes for the end user. But after Robin showed Bruce's wheelchairs maker the text of the law, they agreed, sending out two staffers to get the family set up with the internal software. They gave me the code to get into the app. We played around, we programmed. The couple have been tweaking the wheelchair's different modes, searching for the perfect speed for Robin to jog alongside Bruce or the right settings for a steep walking trail. It's wonderful. It's very wonderful. And their success could have broader effects. They've been told the manufacturer is working on a public-facing app for everyone else who wants to use it. The company didn't respond to a request for comment. Meanwhile, right-to-repair laws are gaining momentum around the country, says Kevin O'Reilly of the advocacy group PERG. We think that this first bill was the crack in the dam that we needed. That includes a new bill from Representative Tatone that guarantees similar rights for farmers to repair their increasingly high-tech tractors and other equipment. It's poised to clear the state legislature in a matter of weeks. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the Grammy-nominated singer-rapper known as Black. He's released his first album in five years. And in 30 minutes, a founding member of the hip-hop group The Fugees goes on trial today on charges that he failed to register as an agent of China. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, it's Monday with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, and a lot's happened since we last talked to her. From more T-slow zones to BPD officers fired for anti-vax pushback and actions related to January 6th. We have questions and so do you, so let's ask her. Radio Boston has Michelle Wu today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Protests are erupting across Israel in response to plans to weaken the country's court system. The FDIC says North Carolina-based First Citizens will buy Silicon Valley Bank after that bank collapsed earlier this month. 
And Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's running for a third Senate term. The 73-year-old Democrat kicked off her campaign this morning. We'll get today's top stories in 10 minutes. Stay on top of the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. Mid-50s today under skies that will slowly grow overcast. Tonight we dip into the 30s. Overnight, a good chance of rain. More rain possible early tomorrow morning, then cloudy and in the mid-40s. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. The R&B singer Ricardo Valdez Valentine Jr. knows a thing or two about heartbreak and messy relationships. The 30-year-old artist, better known by the name Black, spelled with the number six instead of a B, made a Grammy-nominated career out of it. It's a damn shame. We didn't crash, we didn't burn, but baby, you the damn blame. See, I wanted love, but you wanted damn fame. Every damn thing. But on his newest album, Since I Have a Lover, it's clear his art and his heart are in a very different place these days. Since I have a lover, no more lonely night. The type of love that you supply, can't tell a lie. Don't need advice, plus you my advice, like what I like. You light my fire, you give me high, reach a new height. Creatively, I, I used to lean on the crutch of turmoil and heartbreak and disappointment Mm. and sometimes it becomes a fetish to create from that place because it sounds cool and people enjoy it but I've finally reached a point in my life where that's just not where I am and it's not where I want to be. I just had to figure out a cooler way to talk about happier things, positive things, healthier things. How did you get to this place, to this happier place? What brought you here? I got to this place by almost sabotaging everything that I had worked for in my oh. personal life. I can communicate really well emotionally on you know, with music, but in my actual real life and in my personal life, I was struggling with things that almost felt like too easy for it to be that hard. Combos going circles lately. Believing that you really I just wasn't really like listening to myself when I would tell myself that there's an easier way to deal with what's going on in my relationship. There's an easier way Mm -hmm. to deal with the emotions that I still haven't processed since my first tour. So I got a therapist and that was the beginning of like this process of just getting to the source of the issues. Had you, before you actually started therapy, had you been hesitant about it at all? I wouldn't say that I was against therapy, Mm -hmm. but I also was still operating from a space of arrogance and ego where, like, I can do this myself. Like, Mm -hmm. I can handle it on my own. Mm -hmm. And then I would mess up again, and it would be like, I'll say this this time, and then I would get it wrong again. But what do you mean by mess up, I guess, is what I'm trying to understand. If it's something as simple as I am having a tough week because I'm away from my daughter right now, And I am feeling the pressure of everything online anytime that I get online. I just wouldn't say anything about it. I would just deal with it internally. Mm -hmm. And then somebody would say something as simple as, I didn't get the meal that you asked for. And that would just turn into a whole moment. And not necessarily because they didn't do what I asked. But I'm just feeling so much that now that you say something that I don't agree with, it 
it's just more dramatic than it has to be. Yeah. So you were sort of suppressing your feelings around this other stuff, not saying anything, and then reacting to simple. Yeah, and I'm lashing out in, yeah. in moments where I just don't have to. It's going to take me some time to break up my pride. But I'm learning to show up, learning to slow up. Learning to say what I feel instead of a blow up. I'm trying to grow up. So is that what Spirited Away is about? Absolutely. Spirited Away is me like really encouraging myself and motivating myself to just have these conversations because when I have these conversations, I unlock a 2.0 version of myself. Mm. I get to like end my day and feel good about what I said to somebody and how I made somebody else feel. I can look at my emotional growth and my spiritual growth and my mental growth and I can pat myself on the back and I can say that was a good day and that's the true definition of a good day. Well, let's talk about fatal attraction then because it <laughs> sounds like love brought you to a better yes. place. Fatal even though it's called fatal attraction. So of course it makes me think of like a stalker who's gonna kill the person they love, but that's not what it's about. It's exactly, about real yeah, yeah. love. It was fun to work on that one because like you said, when you think of the phrase, normally you would think of something that is a little bit on the unhealthy side. But for me, it's just like acknowledging and admitting that the love that I'm in, it feels as potent as, you know, something that's on the unhealthy side. It's like, I really love this person that much and they really care about me this much that we are willing to go to war for each other and like to be better versions of ourselves. Um, speaking of your family, there is a cameo from your very sweet daughter. Don't you leave me hanging on the one. Uh, the intro, Cold Feet, is yeah. really like a a wormhole it's like how my headspace felt in the midst of like the last four or five years and trying to create something but having all of these external like factors that you are thinking about and feeling like really strongly about i'm trying to focus on the music but in any time that i'm away from my daughter I'm, i can only just hear her voice like in the back of my head you know i would have to like push through those feelings of like i'm missing out on moments right now and i need mm -hmm. to to wrap up this work so i can get back to enjoying some moments you said that you also wanted your lessons learned to be something you also impart through your music to the people who listen. Is that what Preach is about? Yes. It's me like really just reaffirming myself and what I'm here to do. Well, now that, I mean, this whole conversation, I mean, you've been on a journey. So what's it like to have this out in the world? It is the hugest weight off of my shoulders ever. I feel a million times lighter than I felt last year. It feels good to like have another child that I get to drop off into the world and watch it grow and to take it on tour and to see how it affects people and to laugh about it and cry about it and feel good about it. And that's not to say that things will always be amazing from here on out, but it's just to say that I'm aware of the work that it takes to make it as, as amazing as I want it to be. The artist Black, his new album is Since I Have a Lover. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Figured that I could learn a lot on my own, so I ran for your love. Young and naive, I saw some devilish things till I ran out of love. Figured that I could learn a lot on my own, so I ran for your love.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The FDIC has announced that North Carolina-based First Citizens will buy Silicon Valley Bank, which set off global financial turmoil with its failure. It's Monday, March 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, federal officials are promising aid to Mississippi communities devastated by tornadoes that killed more than two dozen people this weekend. What this major disaster declaration does is it ensures that we can bring in the right resources now to help start the recovery process. Also, with Donald Trump facing legal challenges, a new NPR poll shows almost half of Republican voters are open to other presidential candidates. Plus, the history of artificial intelligence beginning in 19. 1956 with a gathering of scientists in New Hampshire. There was a lot of conflict and tension and disagreement, and there wasn't actually a coherent field that emerged out of the conference. Cloudy in mid-50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The president of Israel is calling on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to stop his efforts to overhaul the country's judiciary. The changes would give the government the power to appoint some Supreme Court justices. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports the issue is sparking widespread protests in Israel. Israeli President Isaac Herzog called on Netanyahu's government to, quote, halt the legislative process immediately, following a dramatic night in Israel. Netanyahu fired his defense minister Sunday after the minister said protests have spread inside the military, causing a threat to national security, and called to stop the legislation. The defense minister's dismissal sparked thousands to block major highways. Tel Aviv's central highway was blocked all night long. All of Israel's universities have now gone on strike. Israel's largest trade union has called a nationwide strike. Flights are grounded and protesters have gathered outside the parliament here in Jerusalem where Netanyahu's coalition had prepared to hold a final vote on the legislation. Israeli media report Netanyahu is considering freezing the legislation after three months of protest. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. Parts of Mississippi are under a federal disaster declaration after a tornado ripped through more than a half dozen towns on Friday. At least 25 people were killed. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports a massive cleanup operation is now underway. President Biden approved the federal disaster declaration for Mississippi Sunday, freeing up additional funding for the state's response effort. It came the same day federal officials visited the impacted area and met with state leaders, including Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves. Reeves said it was heartbreaking to see the devastation wrought by the storm, but also inspiring to watch residents come together in the aftermath. Mississippians have done what Mississippians do in times of tragedy, in times of crisis, They stand up and they show up. 
The twister lasted for more than an hour Friday night and traversed roughly 170 miles. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Officials in Philadelphia say they're closely monitoring the city's drinking water after a chemical spill in the Delaware River on Friday. Mike Carroll is the deputy managing director of the department that oversees the city's water system. He says as of now, there's no need to buy bottled water. I'm pleased to say uh, that we have enough water within the system, which we are uh, clear has no contamination. And we're also clear there has not been any contamination in the Philadelphia water system. More than 8,000 gallons of a latex product were released into a Delaware River tributary on Friday night after an equipment failure. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren is running for a third term. She made her 2024 campaign official this morning. In a campaign video released about an hour ago, Warren sounded her ongoing themes of fighting for the middle class and taking on large corporations. She highlighted her recent calls for tighter regulations on large banks. And like I've been saying for years, put stricter rules on banks so they don't crash and hurt working people. We know it won't be easy. We've seen the powerful forces against us and how extreme the Republicans are. Warren easily won re-election in 2018, defeating her Republican opponent by 24 points. Housing advocates are urging legislators to extend a pandemic-era policy intended to prevent tenants from being evicted. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the law is set to expire Friday. Chapter 257 pauses eviction cases when a tenant has a pending application for rental assistance from the state. Lawmakers saw the policy as a key tool for preventing homelessness at the height of the pandemic. But Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless Associate Director Kelly Turley says there's still an eviction crisis fueled by rising rents and low housing supply. So we're asking the courts and the legislature to intervene to extend those protections, which began in 2021, but are clearly still needed today. Data from Princeton University's eviction lab show weekly evictions in Boston are up 75 percent since last year. Governor Maura Healey says she's prepared to review any legislation that reaches her desk. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The former head of the Long Island commuter rail system is in the running to become the next general manager of the MBTA. People with knowledge of the decision tell the Boston Globe Governor Moore Healy's administration is considering Philip Eng. Eng was president of the Long Island Railroad for four years. News of his hire could come as soon as today. Healy officials declined to comment. Blue Line riders tired of the T's slow zones have another option to cross Boston Harbor today. The seasonal ferry service between Lewis Wharf in East Boston and Long Wharf downtown resumed this morning. Normally, ferry riders need to buy tickets in person or on the MBTA's app. But MBTA Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says he's making an exception. If you flash your, your Charlie card... Uh, you will be able to ride into uh, into or out of uh, the, the downtown Boston into East Boston utilizing this ferry. Service on the East Boston Ferry is expected to run through the fall. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more, opening April 1st. WorcesterArt.org. The Bruins have now won seven games in a row. They topped the Hurricanes 4-3 to in a shootout last night in Raleigh. The Bees will host the Predators tomorrow. The Celtics also won yesterday. They beat the San Antonio Spurs 137-93 to at the Garden. The Seas have a day off today. They'll visit the Wizards tomorrow. Increasing clouds throughout the day today. It'll be in the mid-50s. Clouds and rain overnight. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Showers tomorrow morning, then mostly cloudy and in the upper 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The tough road to recovery is coming into view for communities in northwestern Mississippi. A tornado outbreak over the weekend killed at least 26 people and has left hundreds of people displaced with no homes to return to. Federal disaster aid is on the way to help both individuals and local governments start to rebuild. NPR's Debbie Elliott has been in and around the hard-hit town of Rolling Fork. She joins us now. Debbie, let's start with what's happening where you are right now. Well, it's been cleanup and emergency relief. Uh, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves yesterday said that the search and rescue phase has been winding down because teams did spend much of the weekend digging through rubble to make sure that no one else was trapped. Uh, So now it's about just trying to repair basic infrastructure. You know, 75% of Rolling Fork is pretty much flattened. Uh, This is a predominantly black town of about 2,000 people. You know, City Hall is damaged. The water tower blew down. Power lines are just everywhere. The generator at the hospital needs repairs. So as crews start to work on that and they're clearing away some of the debris, volunteers have just descended on the town. They've got food, water, supplies, clothing, you know, diapers, anything that people might need. If you've lost everything you own, right? Uh, shelters are open, and it sounds like a lot of the displaced people have found, uh, you know, refuge with friends and relatives. But you know, that's not a long-term solution to what they're facing here. No, and that list of destruction you mentioned, Debbie. I mean, where do local officials even begin to think about rebuilding? You know, top of mind, other than just sort of getting the power grid back up, right, and the water on, is housing. This is a very rural region here in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. This is farm country. People don't have a lot of resources, as Michelle mentioned. The closest hotels are more than 30 miles away. Here's what Sharkey County Supervisor Leroy Smith says needs to happen. Right now is what we need to be able to make sure that our citizens that's been uprooted and don't have a place that they can stay and be able to take showers and place to lay down at night and food for their families to feed until we can get this situation under control and get it worked out. You know, things most of us take for granted, right? So the FEMA administrator was here and says long-term housing is a priority for the agency and that they're going to be here to see it through. I also spoke with Congressman Benny Thompson, who emphasized that, you know, putting people in hotels with vouchers is not a workable solution, something that's often used in disasters. He says if residents had wanted to move away from this small town to a big city, they'd have already left. Yeah, it's home. Um, So how are the people there that call the place home, how are they coping with the aftermath? 
You know, so many people who lost everything that I've been speaking with just say they're thankful to have survived and are taking things day by day. That is even the message that I heard from Rolling Fork Mayor Eldridge Walker when I asked him to describe what he's up against. I really cannot find words to define it. When I woke up this morning, I said, Lord, just help me make it through another day. That's all I got. He got nothing else. Help me be able to help these families to make it through. That's all I got. This is also personal for Mayor Walker. He is the funeral director. So he's been having to care for grieving families through all this. People he's calling his lifelong friends. So it's a lot. NPR's Debbie Elliott speaking with us uh, this morning from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Debbie, thanks. You're welcome. Jury selection begins today in the federal trial of a Grammy-winning musician. Pras Michelle is best known as a member of the hip-hop group Fugees, alongside Lauryn Hill and Wycliffe Jean. Years later, while reinventing himself as a businessman, he attracted attention from the Justice Department, and now he's charged with conspiracy and acting as an unregistered agent of China. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siulkas and justice correspondent Kerry Johnson are following the case. Anastasia, let's start with you. Tell us a bit more about Pras's musical background. So Pras Michelle's biggest moment as a musician is, as you said, with Fuji's. Their 1996 album, The Score, remains one of the best-selling and most streamed albums of all time. But later, Michelle had his own chart hit as a solo artist with the song Ghetto Superstar. Yeah, great song. Uh, Carrie, what are the charges, uh, central charges, though, in this uh, criminal trial? There are really two big buckets to this prosecution. The first is alleged violations of election law. After Pras Michel made himself into more of a political influencer, he allegedly used so-called straw donors to funnel foreign money to the Obama campaign in 2012. One example is allegedly giving people $40,000 so they could attend a fundraising dinner and repaying them later. Prosecutors say a lot of that money came from a billionaire named Joe Lowe, who is now a fugitive from justice. And the second bucket in this case is about what Michelle allegedly did during the Trump years to help that billionaire Joe Lowe after he got in legal trouble, and what Michelle allegedly did to curry favor with the Chinese government, which had its own goal. China really wanted help in getting a dissident outside of the U.S. and sent back to China. These are pretty serious charges that could send Michelle to prison for a long time if he's convicted. So, Carrie, what is the defense prepared to say about this? Michelle's defense team says the Justice Department uh, offered many other people involved in these alleged schemes immunity from prosecution or some pretty good plea deals. So he's basically the last man standing here, even though they say he was not a major player. One of the defense arguments will be that this guy is a musician, not a D.C. insider or an expert in geopolitics. So the idea he's bargaining with a member of the Chinese government at a Four Seasons hotel in New York meant he may have been really in over his head. They also say Michelle acted in the best interest of the U.S., in one example, they say he helped to get a pregnant hostage released from China. They say he was working for the U.S., not China, so he shouldn't have had to register as a foreign agent here. And Anastasia, I mean, there are some big personalities, some pretty big names associated with this trial. 
That's exactly right. David Kenner, who is Michelle's lead defense attorney, has a long history of representing hip-hop stars. Just as he's defending Michelle this trial, he's also representing artist Tory Lanez in the appeal process after Tory was convicted of shooting fellow musician Megan Thee Stallion. So... Kenner is a very experienced criminal defense attorney, and he also successfully defended Snoop Dogg during his 1996 trial for murder. We should also note a big part of any case related to Joe Lowe is Lowe's penchant for high glamour friends and associates, Lowe hungered to be a powerful Hollywood insider, and a production company allegedly tied to Lowe financed the 2013 film The Wolf of Wall Street, which was directed by Martin Scorsese. And as you may remember, it's starred Leonardo DiCaprio in a real-life tale about a grifter. And the witness list for Prize Michelle's trial might include DiCaprio. Wow. Uh, Carrie, how long do you think this uh, trial is expected to last? Well, 90 prospective jurors are headed to court this morning to answer questions about whether they know or have opinions about Michelle or his music or any of the other likely witnesses in this case, which also could include former Trump political advisor Steve Bannon and casino mogul Steve Wynn. Prosecutors say their case is going to take about two weeks or so. It's not yet clear if Michelle is going to testify in his own defense in this case. That's a decision that may be made down the road. But the trial could wrap up near the end of April. And A, we've also got a jury consultant that's going to be in the room working for Pros Michelle. That's how important this case is to his future and his liberty here. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson, along with Anastasia Siulkas. Thanks, you two. Thank you. Thanks so much. For decades, it was a Sunday morning routine in Mexico. Kids would get up to watch a mischief maker with a squeaky voice on TV. Javier Lopez, known as the friend of all children, was the producer and host of Mexico's longest-running TV show. In Familia con Chabelo was on the air for nearly five decades from 1967 through 2015. Lopez, who played Chabelo, died over the weekend at the age of 88. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador sent his condolences to the family in a tweet. He also recalled how his eldest son used to get up early to watch Chabelo more than 40 years ago. He was born Javier Lopez Rodriguez in 1935 in Chicago. After his family returned to Mexico, he studied medicine but wound up turning to acting. Everyone needs to find their own path, and it's a matter of getting the ingredients. The main ingredient has four letters, and it's called love. Love for doing what you want to do. In 2012, Lopez set the Guinness World Record for the longest career as a children's television host. In children, I've discovered, first of all, that they are the most beautiful part of a human being. And second, they've helped me learn a lot of things for my personal life, which leaves me with no doubt that childhood is the best phase of life. His son, Javier Lopez Miranda, described his dad as a great creative. Javier Lopez ya no está con nosotros, pero Chabelo es eterno. In his son's words, Javier Lopez is no longer with us, but Chabelo is eternal. 
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, as AI chatbots become more popular, we learn about the evolution of the concept of artificial intelligence. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. This fall, eight counties in California are launching new care courts to help people with untreated severe mental illnesses. Some advocates are worried that the program is coercion, not care. Care court, as it's written right now, is unconstitutionally vague and it violates the civil rights of our clients with mental health disabilities who are homeless. More about the program on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Today on the WB Warm Podcast, a common, a closer look at last month's chemical fire in Braintree. It happened at a hazardous waste disposal center and consumed three trailers of chemical waste. Weeks later, we still don't know the full impact of the fire. WBUR reporter Miriam Wasser joins host Daryl C. Murphy on today's episode. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Increasing clouds today with a high near 55. Tonight it falls to a low around 37. Overnight and into early tomorrow morning, there's a good chance of rain, then mostly cloudy with a high near 46. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Artificial intelligence in everything from dating apps to medical care forms an invisible architecture for modern life. For humans, it raises a question that science fiction has often grappled with. Can we make a more perfect version of ourselves? It's alive! It's alive! Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablui host NPR's history podcast, Throughline, and they bring us this origin story for AI. It's the summer of 1956 at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And 10 men get together to invent the field of artificial intelligence. This is Meredith Broussard. She's a data journalism professor at New York University. It was instigated by John McCarthy, who was a mathematics professor at Dartmouth. And Stephanie Dick, an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University, who specializes in the history of mathematics and computing. The proposal that John McCarthy wrote pulls no punches at all. Quote, We propose that a two-month, ten-man study of artificial intelligence be carried out during the summer of 1956 at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. Second sentence. 
The study is to proceed on the basis of the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can in principle be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. Something else that I think was really interesting about this conference is they decided on the name artificial intelligence as the name of their new field. I think the name was chosen aspirationally. There's a lot of desire to make science fiction real, that you're going to make a sentient machine. It's an enormously grandiose idea. The Dartmouth Conference has become an origin myth, commemorated with a plaque and everything. On this site, artificial intelligence was born. But in practice, the conference was a bit of a flop, actually. There was a lot of conflict and tension and disagreement, and there wasn't actually a coherent field that emerged out of the conference. We hear nothing in that origin myth about the relationship that AI has to industrialization or to capitalism or to these colonial legacies of reserving reason for only certain kinds of people and certain kinds of thinking. And that's important because those legacies provided a lot of the vocabulary for the field that would become known as AI. For centuries, factories had been reshaping the nature of work as more and more tasks that had once been done only by human hands were now being done by machines. And this era of rapid technological advancement culminated in the 20th century with the creation of something truly terrifying. At zero minus 15 seconds, a warning tone sounds in the plane. The atomic bomb. The atom bomb made many people wary of new technologies. But some elite academics and scientists believe that better technology was actually the key to our future. What if human decision-making procedures were too slow? What if people's judgments are clouded by their emotions? The thinking was that we could engineer our way out of the problems we'd created. And that led to a boom in investment in science and technology, including artificial intelligence. Which brings us back to that famous Dartmouth conference in the summer of 1956. After all, a conference of mathematicians and scientists. Mostly white men who were educated at elite institutions. Seemed like a pretty good investment. And while they couldn't agree on much, they did share a philosophy of AI, characterizing human minds and digital computers as... Quote unquote, species of the same genus. They are fundamentally the same. Bodies don't matter. Society doesn't matter. Keep in mind, at this point, computers were so big, they took up whole rooms, made tons of noise, and had vacuum tubes for data input. You know, the most disturbing part of the history of AI for me comes from the fact that these men who were working in artificial intelligence looked at those massive, noisy, hot mainframe computers and saw themselves in it. One proposed measure of machine intelligence was something called the Turing test, named for its creator, British mathematician Alan Turing. The way it works is a computer and a human being are put in separate rooms. 
A judge asks each of them questions without seeing either. And then the judge, of course, is meant to be able to figure out whether the machine is the human or the human is the human. And what I have always found so shocking about the Turing test is that it reduces intelligence to telling a convincing lie, to putting on the performance of being something that you're not. And so we see the blind spots of the creators then reflected in the technological artifacts that they create. With each new advancement in AI, humans have continued to move the goalposts for what true intelligence means, as we grapple with the same fundamental question those creators did. What is it that is uniquely human? Maybe it's our intuition, our creativity, our emotions. And then people try to automate those things. We then redefine our humanness again and again. And what it all draws attention to for me is a sort of deep conviction that what it means to be human is both relative and a moving target in history. Stephanie Dick spoke with the hosts of Throughline, Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablui. You can hear the whole Throughline episode wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new NPR PBS NewsHour poll shows almost half of Republican voters are open to presidential candidates other than Donald Trump. It's 829. Coming to WBUR City Space on April 6th, the latest in our curated cuisine series. We'll raise a pint to the Massachusetts beer industry. Tiziana Deering will be joined by folks from White Lion Brewing, Break Rock Brewing, and Jack's Abbey. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club. WaterstoneLexington.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There are large protests today in Israel where pressure is mounting on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to halt his efforts to overhaul the country's judiciary. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Jerusalem. Israel's largest trade union has called a national strike. Flights are currently grounded. Hospitals are canceling non-urgent treatments. And things escalated really quickly last night when Netanyahu fired his defense minister. He was the only government minister who came out opposing the judicial overhaul. Israel's president is also urging Netanyahu to shelve his proposed overhaul. The changes would give the government the authority to appoint some of Israel's Supreme Court justices. Thousands of transportation workers in Germany are on strike today. NPR's Ram Schmitz says travel by air and rail is severely disrupted. Nearly all train and plane travel throughout Germany is canceled as workers for Deutsche Bahn, Germany's national railway, stage a one-day strike to demand higher wages. Airlines have canceled flights for nearly 400,000 passengers. Workers say their wages have not kept up with high inflation that has plagued Europe since Russia's war in Ukraine. 
Ukraine and NATO are criticizing Russian President Vladimir Putin for announcing plans to place tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Kiev wants a, an emergency meeting of the U.N. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Speaker of the Massachusetts House is calling a planned audit of the state legislature unconstitutional. Speaker Ron Mariano says he will not cooperate with the audit. He told WCVB's on the record he believes the auditor cannot be impartial. I have authority over the audit of its budget. So there are inherent conflicts Mm -hmm. when you start crossing the executive branch with the legislative branch or the judicial branch. Otter Diana DeZaglio says she plans to go ahead with her audit of Beacon Hill's finances. She believes it will increase transparency. There hasn't been an audit of the legislature in more than a century. Redline riders are finally able to use the main entrance to the Alewife T station again. It reopened today. The lobby had been closed since a car crashed into the top floor of the garage early last month. T officials say construction will be ongoing until repairs are finished. The mild winter we just had is leading to more deer ticks. They carry and transmit diseases, and it's not just a problem for humans. Dog owners are being warned to check their pets for ticks. Monica Mansfield is with the Massachusetts Veterinary Medical Association. She says it's not Lyme disease that's raising concerns. I saw, and the other veterinarians at my practice saw, much higher than average number of anaplasmosis that we don't typically see is in high numbers. Also, babesiosis is spreading and is now considered endemic in Massachusetts. Mansfield says oral medications or drops of repellent on the back of dogs' necks are the best prevention. In sports, make it three wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the San Antonio Spurs 137-93 yesterday at the Garden. The Seas are off today. They'll visit Washington tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Hurricanes 4-3 in a shootout last night in Raleigh. After a day off today, the Bees will host the Predators tomorrow. Skies gradually grow cloudy today and we'll have high temperatures in the mid-50s. Tonight we'll dip into the 30s and overnight there's a chance of rain. The showers may continue early tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy with highs in the mid-40s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.33. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Select Quote. For over 35 years, Select Quote has been committed to helping customers find life insurance that fits their budget. Customers can shop multiple life insurance carriers and compare rates at selectquote.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Another week, another round of waiting for a potential indictment of former President Donald Trump. 
Last week, Trump claimed he was going to be arrested in a hush money case out of New York. He was not. He is, though, using the investigation to help him with his base and raise money. So how do Americans feel about the multiple criminal investigations into his conduct, not just in New York, but in Georgia and two federal cases? A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out this morning asked more than 1,300 respondents just that. Here to explain is NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. So what do uh, people make of these investigations into the former president? Well, a majority, 56%, say that they're fair, while 4 in 10 call them a witch hunt. That, of course, echoes Trump and his allies and how they talk about these investigations. And as we continue to see, huge partisan divide here. 9 in 10 Democrats say the investigations are fair. 8 in 10 Republicans call them a witch hunt. And independents are closely split, with a slim majority calling them fair. Those most likely to say the investigations are fair are younger people, those in the Gen Z and millennial generations, people who live in big cities and suburbs, and white college grads, especially college-educated white women. They've been one of the most reliable Democratic voter and anti-Trump groups. The most likely to call them a witch hunt, uh, key core Trump-supporting groups, white men without college degrees, white evangelical Christians, and those who live in small towns. Okay. Now, do the people who responded to the poll think that Donald Trump did anything wrong? Well, overwhelmingly, the majority did think he did at least something wrong. You know, three quarters say they think he either did something illegal or that he did something unethical but not illegal. Only a quarter say he did nothing wrong at all. Uh, Breaking that down, almost half say they think he did something illegal. 29% say unethical but not illegal. And only 11% of Republicans think he did something illegal. But interestingly, there is a split among Republicans. You know, they're pretty evenly divided between those who think he did something unethical and those who say he did nothing wrong at all. That's pretty reflective of the Republican presidential primary right now, if you look at that, look at that, because we've been seeing that almost half of GOP voters say they're at least open to someone other than Trump, but that Trump has a pretty strong hold on the other half so far. So, okay, so speaking of that, then, is there anything here about Trump's prospects for his 2024 run? Yeah, well, let's first start out with how people feel about him, because that sets a pretty good baseline. Overall, he's still pretty highly disliked. 51% have an unfavorable opinion of Trump, just 39% have a favorable one. Republicans, though, love him. Eight in 10 Republicans have a positive view of Trump, just 14% say they have a negative one. But there's a continued warning sign for him with independents. Just 37% say they like him. We also asked people if they want Trump to be president again, and here, six in 10 say they do not. But look at these splits. Nine in 10 Democrats and almost two-thirds of independents say no, but three-quarters of Republicans Republicans say they do want him to be president again. All right. Yeah, so that's a pretty big gap. I mean, Huge what does this gap. say? Yeah. What does this say then about his chances to be president again? You know, it really represents the conundrum that is Trump in the GOP primary. I mean, often primary voters become practical and say, you know what? We want someone who can win. But there's the CNN poll out last week that showed Republican voters would rather have someone who agrees with them rather than someone who can beat Biden. That's completely different than where Democrat the Democratic base was before the 2020 election. And, you know, when you look at these kinds of numbers in our poll, theirs and others, it's hard to see how he wins a general election, but also loses a Republican primary. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. 
The expulsion of a key opposition leader from India's parliament is raising questions about the strength of democratic institutions in the world's largest democracy. Rahul Gandhi was preparing to run against Prime Minister Narendra Modi when he was convicted on defamation charges and barred from next year's elections. Milan Vaishnav is the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he's with us now to tell us what all this means. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Michelle. So first of all, is the expulsion of Rahul Gandhi from the ballot a done deal? In Indian politics, there's no such thing as a done deal. Uh, Gandhi was convicted by a court in the state of Gujarat on charges of criminal defamation. The judge sentenced him to a two-year stint in jail, but he also delayed the onset of his sentence by 30 days to allow Rahul Gandhi to appeal. So we are expecting Gandhi to appeal, and he'll probably try first to obtain a stay on his conviction, which would allow him to temporarily retain his seat in parliament. Uh, And then uh, likely the next course of action would be to seek an appeal to overturn the entire conviction. Well, let's just just say for the sake of argument that it is a done deal. How could his absence from the ballot affect these upcoming elections? Well, there is nothing stopping Rahul Gandhi or his family or people around him from continuing to campaign. Um, In Indian politics, people have campaigned for elections from inside of jail cells, even when they haven't been let out on bail. Um, What I think it does is to make him front and center, which is actually probably a good matchup for the incumbent, Narendra Modi, the current prime minister. Uh, Rahul Gandhi has gone head to head, toe to toe with Mr. Modi in the last two general elections in 2014 and 2019. And in both of those elections have resulted in the complete rout of the Congress party. So the longer Rahul Gandhi is in the spotlight, ironically, the better it is for the BJP. Well, so so here, so here's the thing, that Modi remains extremely popular in India. Morning Consult puts his approval ratings at close to 80%. Do you have a sense that whether this move against Gandhi could change that? I really don't think so. I think Narendra Modi is genuinely popular. Uh, Rahul Gandhi suffers from a real uh, problem of image as somebody who is seen as a part-time politician, as somebody who doesn't have the same kind of political acumen as Narendra Modi, and someone who, frankly, just doesn't have the heart for the rough and tumble of Indian politics. So I don't think in the larger scheme of things, the uh, perception of Narendra Modi or Rahul Gandhi is really going to shift very significantly. I think what this means, though, is this is yet another element in the BJP's efforts, the ruling party's efforts, to really kind of minimize the Congress. Their goal, uh, and they've stated this as such, is to have a Congress-free India, which means not just eliminating the party, but really eliminating the, the, the leadership and their sympathizers. But before we let you go, and apologies that this is a complex question for a short amount of time, but does this, what does this whole episode say about the state of democracy in India? Well, I think what it tells us is that there is really shrinking space for opposition politics, shrinking space for dissent, uh, and the real consolidation of a kind of dominant party run by Mr. Modi. But it's important to point out that the law on criminal defamation that is plaguing Rahul Gandhi is a colonial era law mm-hmm. that all governments in India have used to their advantage. So. Modi and the BJP have not had to invent any new tools. They're just implementing uh, what's already on the books. That's Milan Vaishnav. He's the director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, we take a look at the local ties to the famous poem Casey at the Bat, which was written by a Massachusetts author more than a century ago. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest from Israel, where protests have broken out nationwide. It's a response to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms. In your forecast, it'll gradually grow cloudy today, and we'll have temperatures in the mid-50s. Tonight, upper 30s, and overnight and into early tomorrow morning. There's a good chance of rain, then cloudy tomorrow in the mid-40s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets. April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. A former Leslie University office building in Porter Square could soon become lab space. The Boston Business Journal reports the property's new owner is meeting with nearby residents next month to discuss the idea. No permits have been filed with the city for the project just yet. Framingham-based Amoresco is partnering with Alaska Pacific University to upgrade the school's Nordic Ski Training Center. Amoresco says the project will make the facility's water system more energy efficient. Work will start this summer and is expected to be done in the fall. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And so when... That is a reading of the legendary Casey at the Bat, which seems appropriate with the Red Sox opening day this Thursday. The poem was written in 1888. And did you know it was written in Massachusetts? Ernest Thayer is the author. He was born in Lawrence and raised in Worcester. Thayer first published Casey at the Bat in the San Francisco Examiner. You can see a 125-year-old copy of it on display right now at the Worcester Public Library. Tara Jankowski is a baseball fan who works at the library. We're lucky enough to have the original publication. So it will be in a glass case. You can read it kind of okay, but It is definitely um, the staple of Worcester baseball history. And so people are going to be able to take a look at that. And um, it's, you know, for lack of a better word, it's awesome. (laughs) It's it's an it's an artifact. And Worcester Public Library holds on to it. The library is right down the street from Polar Park, home of the Woo Sox. They open their season this week as well. Casey at the Bat is on display as part of a larger baseball exhibit that will be open through Sunday. Somewhere bands are playing, somewhere hearts are light, somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. (laughs) But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. golfers are driving balls much farther, so the rules may change for the official golf ball. Here's NPR's Gus Contreras. Golf equipment has evolved a lot through the years. And that's where he's headed, just a little bit wide of it, but this ball appears to be hammered. 
Clubs used to be made with wood, and the original ball was made out of leather, stuffed with goose feathers. A far cry from the modern tech that utilizes titanium drivers and highly engineered golf balls. If you go all the way back to when Tiger Woods first entered the professional golf scene in the late 90s, that was, in my opinion, when equipment had this massive spike in technology. That's Jonathan Wall, managing editor for equipment at golf.com. And I think that's when the governing bodies started to take a closer look and say, all right, the ball's maybe going too far now. So what are we going to do to help rein back in distance? The solution back then was to stretch out classic golf courses to their maximum distances. In theory, to make it more challenging for the long hitters. But now the sustainability of that model is being questioned. Longer courses need more attention, land, and water. So the new proposed solution is to create two separate golf balls, one for professionals and one for the everyday player. They don't want the pro ball to go as far as it currently does. A typical drive would be 20 yards shorter. The best example is like in baseball. There's a wooden bat used in major leagues and a metal bat used in college and recreational play. The wooden bats require that extra bit of skill to pound the ball 300 plus feet. There's many factors that go into this, and I don't believe the golf ball should have been singled out. Professional golfer Billy Horschel was speaking on the No Laying Up podcast. He's won many tournaments. Yes, distance has increased on the PGA Tour. There's no doubt about that. We are making a change for 0.1% of the golfers in the world. Horschel disagrees with the proposed rule change. He doesn't think there's a problem with distance or the ball. But at the local level, where the majority of recreational golfers play, there's a trickle-down effect, says Will Smith. He's co-founder of National Links Trust, the nonprofit organization that manages the three public golf courses in Washington, D.C., including East Potomac Golf Links. Smith points out that this course is almost outdated now. 18 full holes opened in 1923, so here we are 100 years later, and we're trying to build a golf course that can then challenge and be interesting to golfers who hit the ball probably, on average, 30, 40, 60 yards further. Smith and his organization plan to renovate the D.C. courses, including making some holes longer, to stay relevant with modern equipment. When people make their decisions about where they want to play golf, one of the things they look at is, is yardage, and rightly or wrongly. Someone who's really good at golf might think that that's not a, a worthy test. Golf equipment companies are in the business of helping people hit the ball further, and argue the new pro ball will take the fun out of the game. Again, Jonathan Wall. Everybody's been playing the same golf ball for eons, so to now tell them that there's going to be a pro ball and an amateur ball, it's just something that doesn't compute with a sport that's steeped in history. Golf's ruling bodies hope to finalize a new ball by 2026, but are making it clear, this change won't stop long drives or affect the weekend golfer. For now, Gus Contreras, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how recalls can affect businesses as health officials investigate several cases of vision loss and deaths linked to certain brands of eye drops. It's 850 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston University Arts Initiative, presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I believe real journalism is essential to our daily life and our collective future. I believe public radio is one of the last great hopes for journalism in our country. If you believe these things too, then I'm asking you to start a monthly contribution to WBUR. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, maybe just 10 to $15 a month. It'll go a long way to protect one of life's essentials. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Recovery efforts are underway in Mississippi after a tornado there killed more than two dozen people Friday night. People are protesting across Israel after the country's defense minister was fired for speaking out against plans to weaken the court system. And Senator Elizabeth Warren announced plans this morning to run for a third term. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. Mid-50s today under skies that will slowly grow overcast. Tonight we dip into the 30s. Overnight, a good chance of rain. More rain possible early tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy and in the mid-40s. Right now, 44 degrees in Boston at 852. For Citizens Bank to the rescue, Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at progressivecommercial.com. From Marketplace, I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer, in for David Brancaccio. North Carolina-based First Citizens Bank has agreed to take over much of what was once Silicon Valley Bank, which collapsed just over two weeks ago and set off a banking crisis. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with details. Hi, Nova. Good morning. So, Nova, walk us through the details of this transaction. Okay. Uh, First Citizens Bank purchased about $72 billion worth of loans held by Silicon Valley Bank, and it assumed control of $56 billion in deposits. So that's the total amount of money customers actually have in their accounts at Silicon Valley Bank. What First Citizens did not purchase is what regulators say are about $90 billion in securities and other assets. And so that would include bond holdings, which lost value. That's one of the main reasons Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. So does this purchase help stabilize the banking situation? Well, regulators sure hope so. Uh, We had Minneapolis Federal Reserve President Neil Kashkari on CBS's Face the Nation yesterday, echoing the same reassuring words that we've heard from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, saying that the banking system is in good shape. But the genie is out of the bottle to a certain extent. Bank deposits are reportedly leaving smaller institutions. The concern is that that can cause a widespread credit crunch if it continues, and a credit crunch would slow the economy. Kashkari said Fed policymakers are monitoring to spot that kind of phenomenon if it develops. Nova Safa, thank you. You're welcome. Let's do the numbers. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are up in the 3 to 7 tenths percent range, with the Dow future up 217 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 3.49%. 
A couple of companies have now recalled eye drops linked to a bacterial infection. The infection caused death, blindness, or the loss of an eye in a number of people. To be clear, only certain brands are affected, but how does a recall affect companies that make similar products, whether it's eye drops, baby formula, food, or cars? Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. Every recall is different. The impact of the recall just really depends on the size and severity of it. Garrett Nelson at CFRA Research says big recalls that get a lot of attention can spill over and affect other brands that make similar products. Take the Volkswagen recall of 2015 when it came out that the company's diesel cars violated emission standards and that VW had been covering it up. That recall had a major spillover effect to other German automakers such as BMW and Mercedes-Benz. And I've seen estimates ranging from $5 billion all the way to about $26 billion in terms of the cumulative impact of lost sales. But sometimes the opposite can happen, and competing brands can actually benefit when one company has a recall, says Caroline Harrell at Inmar Intelligence. When a recall does hit and those items are pulled from the shelf, the ones that stay, they'll see kind of a spike in sales. It also depends on how much consumers get about what went wrong, says David Garfield at Alex Partners. If the nature of the recall, the reason for it, and the scope of it is clear, then consumers will understand that and isolate the recall to those brands. But if it's not clear, he says, they're more likely to start worrying about other brands, too. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Over the weekend, Twitter revealed some of its source code had been leaked online. The social media giant is taking legal action to identify the leaker. On Friday, Elon Musk told employees Twitter was worth roughly $20 billion. It's down more than 50% from what he paid for it. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing stability and continuity for client relationships. More information at BairdDifference.com. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made some waves on Capitol Hill this week, talking about the government's decision to cover uninsured deposits after the collapses of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. On Thursday, Yellen said the department is, quote, prepared to take additional actions if warranted. The bank failures have focused regulators and policymakers on the risk of contagion, and that risk has prompted some small business owners to think about their own bank accounts. Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. The Monday after Signature Bank collapsed a couple weekends ago, staff at LaSalle State Bank in Illinois pulled up a list of their largest depositors. We started making phone calls to them to see if they had any questions that we could address. Chris Duncan is the bank's chief lending officer. To reassure them that uh, our situation is uh, holistically different than the situation of some of the banks that were struggling. Duncan says the message was that the bank still has plenty of deposits on its balance sheet. If we can explain that there really is not anything to fear in the banking industry today, if we can get that message out there, I'm hoping that, that people's fears of a liquidity crisis will subside. Banks need to hang on to their customers' deposits so they can keep making loans. Nate Tobik, the founder of Complete Bank Data, says smaller banks play a vital role in supporting local economies. Look at what they did when the Paycheck Protection Program rolled out early in the pandemic. The small banks were able to get that up and running and help customers right away. They're really the backbone of communities. Even so, Tobik says he's planning to open a new account for his business at a bigger institution. 
He says that's because history has shown that the government's willing to save bigger banks that it considers too big to fail. The government has essentially said your money is guaranteed there, whereas at some of these smaller banks, that does not seem to be the case. Other business owners say they're sticking with bigger banks because they tend to have more sophisticated technology. Jackie London runs a public health consultancy. Now, obviously, having an app that's really easily accessible, um, it's very easy to log in. I'm able to see how much money is in there in which accounts. London says she started banking with a bigger institution before the pandemic, and she's planning to keep her money there, in large part because she can quickly and easily move it around. When you go into business for yourself, the hard part comes from being the owner. The easy part should be where and how you access your money. And London says the recent bank failures have shown that having easy access to your money is important. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. The General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board issued a memo last week. The memo was clarifying the scope of a February ruling. The new rule says all non-disparagement clauses and severance agreements are now null and void. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.